Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. In this podcast, we finish our coverage of Woodrow Wilson and also have the same three guest contributors, Emily Kilgore and Andrew Phillips from the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library and Museum and Elizabeth Karcher of the Woodrow Wilson House. As a reminder from the last podcast, the Elizabeth Karcher sounds a little bit off as it was a recorded conversation between Jean Ann and Elizabeth. We previously spoke on the domestic issues that Woodrow Wilson dealt with, and now we delve into the foreign issues like the Armenian genocide within the Ottoman Empire and other items like the Mexican Civil War, the U.S. occupation of Haiti, the Russian Revolution, and of course the Bolsheviks, and then touch on his post-presidency and his failing health. And now we turn it over to our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about some foreign policy issues aside from World War I that Woodrow Wilson had to deal with during his presidency. We talked at great length about some domestic issues, but foreign policy-wise, there is a lot going on here. We are going to have two, possibly even three episodes on World War I, so we aren't going too much into detail on that, on the Wilson episodes. During World War I, there is another big event that's occurring. World War I acted like a smokescreen for this next event. In April of 1915, the first major genocide of the 20th century begins. Within the Ottoman Empire, which is mostly Muslim, you have a minority group of Armenian Christians. Armenians were seen as scapegoats for the Ottoman Empire's losses. Armenian Christian intellectuals are at first rounded up, put into camps, and killed. And then you start seeing hundreds of thousands of Armenian people being rounded up taken to refugee camps, and killed. The thought process was that these Christian groups would be more likely to support the Russians, who were also Christian. Along with Armenians, there are also Assyrians and Greeks that are being killed. Christians living near the Russian border were removed. Many were sent on death marches. People were starved, burned alive, shot, even crucified. During the Armenian genocide that began in 1915, it is believed that anywhere from 500,000 to 1.5 million Armenians and other Christian groups within the Ottoman Empire were murdered by the Turkish government. To this day, the government of Turkey still refuses to admit that a genocide took place. FacingHistory.org has great information about the United States' response to the Armenian genocide. At the time, the United States ambassador in Turkey is getting information about what's happening to Armenians and passes along the information to the United States Secretary of State. News of what was happening was printed in United States newspapers and relief in the form of money was sent to Armenians. No political or military intervention by the United States government was sent to help Armenians. It never happened. In 1915, the United States is still neutral. We are not yet involved in World War I, and the genocide in the former Ottoman Empire, today known as Turkey, continued until the early 1920s, 
World War I created the perfect smokescreen of sorts for this genocide. And World War I, of course, occurs from 1914 to 1918, wherein the armistice takes place. And then the treaty, of course, is signed in 1919. Now, there are other areas in the world that we should talk about in regards to Wilson's foreign policy. Countries like Mexico, Latin America, Haiti, and of course, Russia, who has its revolution in 1917. Let's start with Mexico. With the outbreak of civil war in Mexico, there is pressure for the United States government to intervene, to protect U.S. citizens living in Mexico and to protect American businesses that had interests in the reason. So in that had interests in the region. So all of this is beginning to get more and more of a desire to do right. We want to protect U.S. citizens. We want to protect American businesses. Quickly after coming into office, an arms embargo begins. Wilson wanted to limit the weapons going into Mexico, and he wanted our allies to withdraw recognition of Huerta's government. American warships are then sent to the coast to protect U.S. oil interests in the region. Tensions rose after nine American sailors were detained by the Mexican military after picking up fuel. The sailors had entered an area that was considered off limits. While the sailors were released, U.S. military officials wanted an apology and a 21-gun salute. Imagine being a foreign citizen going into a country that's off limits. They release you and say, and you say, I want an apology. And on top of that, I'd also like a 21-gun salute while you're at it. Now, the United States military, they got the apology, but they would not get the 21-gun salute. When word reached Washington that a shipment of weapons had entered the port, Wilson gave the order for the United States military to take the port. This event would become known as the Tampico Affair, and it would lead to a seven-month U.S. occupation of Veracruz. As civil war raged on in Mexico and fighting got closer to the United States border, Woodrow Wilson sent the National Guard to protect the United States border. After a raid at a town in New Mexico led by General Francisco Pancho Villa, you may know him in history as being more commonly referred to as Pancho Villa, 18 U.S. soldiers were kidnapped and murdered. Villa hoped to incite a war between the United States and Mexico and bring down the Mexican government. That, of course, wouldn't happen. One of the issues that brings the United States into war is the Zimmerman note or the Zimmerman telegram. And now that you have this backstory of the relationship between the United States and Mexico kind of makes that telegram make a bit more sense and and why it made the United States so angry and why Mexico very quickly divulged this information to the United States. Now on to Haiti. On July 28th, 1915, over 300 U.S. Marines were sent to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, after a coup that began after the lynching of President Jean Vilbrun Guillaume Sam. Now, this was the start of a 19-year-long occupation of Haiti. In an NAACP report by James Wilson Johnson in 1920, which was titled The Truth About Haiti, an NAACP investigation, his investigation and articles that followed within the nation, which was the paper run by the NAACP, described the corruption, the forced labor, press censorship, racial segregation, and the violence that was prevalent in Haiti. 
The Constitution for Haiti was drafted by Assistant Secretary of, of the Navy, a man by the name of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You may have heard of him. And while it was a fairly liberal document, it did allow for foreign land ownership, something that had been made illegal by the first leader of Haiti following the revolution, a man by the name of Jean-Jacques Dessalines. The Senate Committee of Foreign Relations was created in order to investigate the occupation of the island of Hispaniola. In 1929, a commission found that many of the previous claims of corruption to be true, and U.S. Marines withdrew from Haiti in 1934 under President Franklin Roosevelt. Now, lastly, I do want to talk about the Russian Revolution. Tsar Nicholas II is the ruler of Russia and another grandson of Queen Victoria of Great Britain. An earlier revolution in Russia in 1905 that took place after the Russo-Japanese War sets the stage for the revolution of 1917. Russia was ill-equipped to fight war during World War I. Soldiers didn't have adequate supplies. And, you know, we're talking essential supplies, things like boots and bullets, just to give you two examples. The Tsar insisted on leading the military, which didn't help matters either. Protests against the war and the lack of food began. Tsar Nicholas does not have the support of the military either. He leaves the war front to return home, but it is too late. Tsar Nicholas abdicates the throne, but it is not enough to save his life. He attempts to leave Russia and looks to his European relatives to give him asylum in their countries, but without public support, it couldn't be done. After all, they want to keep the crowns that they have on their heads. The family is imprisoned and eventually executed. You can't talk about the Russian Revolution without talking about the Bolsheviks, even as quickly as I have glazed over this. The Bolsheviks are led by men like V.I. Lenin and Leon Trotsky, and their ideas of peace, land, and bread caught on, especially with the peasants or the lower class. The Bolsheviks overthrew the provisional government. Individuals who supported democracy in Russia were either imprisoned or killed. So civil war breaks out, and it paves the way for a communist government in Russia to be established. The goal was to spread communism. Now, this is not only a threat to the crowned heads of Europe, but it is also a threat to the democracy of the United States. While the United States supported the provisional government that was set up after the abdication of the czar, they would not recognize the communist government of Russia until 1933. During the Russian Civil War, there are two sides. The Bolsheviks, otherwise known as the Red Army, our government was not about to support them. And then you have the White Army. The White Army was not as united in spirit and in goal as the Bolsheviks or the Red Army was. The United States, along with other countries, participated in what was known as the Allied Intervention in the Russian Civil War in the hopes of helping the White Army defeat the Bolsheviks and to establish a democracy in Russia. This was not to be. On the home front, fear of Bolshevism spreading within the United States, especially amongst the working class and within labor unions, grew. Various strikes throughout the country fueled those fears and emboldened government officials to stamp out communist leaders before they could do any damage. The Department of Justice, led by Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, led a series of raids 
to arrest known or suspected anarchists and socialists. There were over 3,000 arrests made and hundreds of immigrants were deported. Anti-Italian and German immigrant sentiments led to attacks and violence against Italian-Americans and German-Americans. There is this idea that hyphenated Americans, right? Italian hyphen American, German hyphen American, hyphenated Americans were disloyal to the United States and American society because they held more loyalty to their mother country, right? The place where they had come from. There will be another Red Scare in the United States, but this time after World War II. During Wilson's presidency, we aren't just seeing violence towards immigrant groups. We're also seeing violence against Black Americans. Throughout his lifetime, Wilson's views on civil rights for Black Americans are terrible. Can you discuss Wilson's views on this topic? Woodrow Wilson's record on civil rights, especially for African Americans, is abysmal. Wilson was the last U.S. president born in a home where enslaved people lived and worked, and he grew up in Georgia and South Carolina during the Civil War and Reconstruction. His father was a prominent minister who gave fiery sermons outlining the biblical justifications for chattel slavery. So perhaps it's not too surprising that as an adult, Woodrow Wilson developed a very paternalistic racism. Now, he subscribed to this idea that races and cultures were on a ladder, and the top rung was white people from northern and western Europe, and that included those who had immigrated from those areas to places like the United States, Canada, Australia, etc. Wilson agreed with many others uh, in this era, including Rudyard Kipling and Theodore Roosevelt, that it was the duty of those at the top to help other groups become more civilized. This was also known at the time uh, as the white man's burden. Wilson may have agreed with this view, uh, but that didn't mean he wanted African Americans to try to become educated at the school where he taught. As a professor and later president of Princeton University, he actively discouraged black students from attending. When he was a president of the United States, he allowed his cabinet secretaries to segregate the workers in their departments, uh, like the Treasury and the Post Office, and these were jobs that had been integrated for many years. Uh, when black leaders protested, Wilson ignored them or claimed that it was for their own good. And at the same time that Wilson was actively discriminating against African Americans, he was standing up for the civil rights of other groups. He appointed the very first Jewish American, Louis Brandeis, uh, to the Supreme Court and named several Native Americans to high office in his government. Like all presidents, uh, Wilson was filled with contradictions, and nowhere is that more stark than how he approaches civil rights. Just to give you an example of the attitude some people had on race during his presidency, you don't have to look much further than the Red Summer of 1919. This is the lynching of 76 Black Americans. Some of the people lynched were World War I veterans dressed in their uniform. Just take a minute to let that fact sink in. You have to consider the deep-rooted hatred, the bigotry, the racism that exists in the United States during this time to have war heroes lynched in their uniforms. Just the very basic nature of the statement 
76 human beings being lynched, their bodies hanging from trees, and there is no major national uproar for this to stop. To say that there is a lot going on during Wilson's presidency at home and abroad, it is an understatement. It is the understatement of the year. In the midst of all of these major foreign policy issues and world events, World War I ends and a peace treaty must be made. After the 1918 armistice, the fighting ends and there is a need to create a plan for peace. Now, we're going to talk about this more in our World War I podcast, but can you discuss Woodrow Wilson's plans for peace? After the war ends, his 14 points include ideas such as self-determination, which many countries see as the growth of their nation, as well as the establishment of the League of Nations. However, these international beliefs break up much of Germany's control, as well as disbands multiple empires that existed at the time, which leaves many countries angry at their treatment after World War I. The thoughts set in place because of what we term as Wilsonianism today leave many countries with the hope of establishing democracies, but not a clear framework to do so. Despite Woodrow Wilson's best efforts to get the American people on board, America never ratifies the Treaty of Versailles and never joins the League, as many congressional members did not believe in everything it stood for. Wilson's efforts had been cut short by the stroke that would eventually debilitate him for the rest of his presidency, but he is unable to push further in Europe as a consistent organization for the League. Eventually, the League will disband, and this is seen as a failure. However, many historians today agree that this is what sets the stage for the United Nations that was developed after World War II. The Treaty of Paris negotiations were not easily hashed out. Leaders were stubborn. Wilson kept Congress in the dark in regards to the negotiations on the treaty. Now, constitutionally, the president has the right to negotiate treaties, but it is the Senate that must approve them and make them law, you know, checks and balances. The League of Nations was especially troubling for the Senate. They feared that it would pull the United States into foreign conflicts. Now, you mentioned his stroke. He has a massive stroke after having to return home from this speaking tour that he goes on trying to build support for the treaty and the League of Nations. On October 2nd, Wilson collapsed in the White House. His wife found him unconscious on the bathroom floor of the White House. Edith Wilson pulls her husband to their bed and then went out into the hallway to use a secure line to ask to have the president's doctor come to see him. The official White House story was that the president was suffering from nervous exhaustion. An emergency cabinet meeting was called to discuss the fact that no one had seen the president. Wilson's doctor assured the members of the cabinet that the president was fine. This is a time where there is no 25th Amendment. The only stipulation that is in place in the Constitution states, in case of the removal of the president from office or his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president. Well, the question became, what does inability to discharge the powers and duties 
of the office mean? Who gets to decide this? The vice president at the time was a man by the name of Thomas R. Marshall. Of the vice presidency, he once said the following, and I love this quote. I think it's hilarious. He says, once there were two brothers, one ran away to the sea. The other was elected vice president of the United States, and nothing was heard of either of them again. How funny is that? That is amusing. Marshall was kept out of the loop in regards to pretty much everything. When President Wilson suffered a stroke, he wasn't told either. When he did finally find out about what happened, he tried to see Wilson, but the first lady, Edith Wilson, refused to let him in to see the president. I don't know if you remember the calls by some for Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment in the remaining days of Trump's presidency. Yes, after, yes. But even though there was no 25th Amendment, there were still some cabinet members who wanted Marshall to take over presidential duties. He was unwilling to do so without the support of Congress. Andrew, can you discuss the impact that the stroke had on Wilson and on his presidency? Wilson was never comatose, uh, but he was not well enough to lead the country. Doctors today tell us that the best way to help someone who has suffered a stroke is to talk to them, uh, that engagement with the world can help speed the healing process. But back then, the opposite was believed. Uh, it was thought that isolation and rest were the best medicine. Rather than resign, uh, his wife Edith, his doctor Carrie Grayson, and his secretary Joseph Tumulty conspired to keep the severity of the president's condition a secret. And this was not just from the public or from the press, but this was from members of Wilson's own cabinet as well. Edith Wilson acted as gatekeeper. She decided what issues to take to her husband and tried to maintain the illusion that though Wilson wasn't meeting people in person, he was still in control. Uh, some have referred to Edith as the first female president, uh, but it might be more accurate to call her the first female chief of staff. In her memoir, written decades later, she played down her role, claiming she was more of a messenger than anything. But even if she had not been trying to secretly control the government, her role in the six months or so immediately following that stroke are unprecedented in U.S. history. Wilson would slowly recover, uh, was even able to walk and hold meetings again, but he would be very frail uh, for the rest of his life. The dynamic speaker who had shepherded major legislation through Congress, who had led his nation into World War I, who had gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with kings and prime ministers, was gone. Wilson's post-presidency was short, and it was marked with severe illness. Wilson did not leave his home. He wrote a few essays. He attempted to start a law practice, but he was unable to work. He was partially paralyzed from his stroke and his eyesight had worsened considerably. Our guest, Elizabeth Karcher, is from Woodrow Wilson House in Washington, D.C. Can you talk a little bit about the home and the last years of Woodrow Wilson's life? Um, the house is historic for a number of reasons. It, it is the house that Woodrow, President Woodrow Wilson and his wife Edith retired to when they left the White House uh, on Inauguration Day in 1921. 
and they lived in that house. Uh, Wilson lived there until he died in 1924, and Edith went on to live in this house until her death in 1961. She happened to have died on Woodrow Wilson's birthday, which is December 28th, and uh, she bequeathed the house to the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and it has been in the trust uh, ever since. This year is interesting for us because we're not only celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Wilsons moving into the house, but we're also celebrating the 60th anniversary of the house being part of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. The house was built by or designed by a very famous American architect named Waddy Butler Wood. He designed a number of houses and very big public buildings as well in Washington, D.C. The house was started in 1915 and completed in 1916. And it is one of the few houses in Washington that's designed to be a private residence that is actually open to the public for people to see. So the only other way that you would see a private residence of of a Waddy Butler would design is if the house goes on the market for sale and you see that it's on the market and you go to look at it. Otherwise, you, you won't have the opportunity to see a private residence that's designed by Waddy Butler Wood. He also designed other buildings like the Masonic Temple, which is the uh, Museum of Women in the Arts and the Department of the Interior, which is a really big building. It's a really gorgeous design. And the other thing that's super cool about this house is that Edith Wilson kept it to be in her, in the bequeathment, in the bequeathment document, it says that she'd like to have it be as a memorial or as a shrine to her husband. Now, of course, in 1961, it was seen as a shrine. Wilson was seen as one of the greatest presidents uh, the United States had ever had. By now, 60 years later, we're recognizing that as all humans, he is flawed and was flawed. And so we don't see it as a shrine, but rather for his legacy. And we use it some, as a building to uh, explain his legacy and explain his complicated legacy. But what's interesting is that the house is really untouched since the day he died, which in 1924, she really kept it just just like it was when he was alive, so that people can see what houses, upper class, high end, luxury mansions looked like that were state of the art in 1924. You can see what that looks like today. Before we close up our podcast on Wilson, I do want to take a few minutes to have our guests discuss some of their favorite artifacts in the museum. As I mentioned earlier, Andrew and Emily are from the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library and Museum in Virginia. What are your favorite artifacts in the museum? My favorite artifact in the collection is Woodrow Wilson's 1919 Pierce Arrow limousine. It is the oldest still operational presidential car in the country. It was a part of the White House fleet after World War I, and Wilson was only the a second president to have cars in the White House fleet. Theodore Roosevelt was the first president to ride in a car, but it is Taft and Wilson who had not only cars, but horse-drawn carriages in the vehicle fleets of the White House. Woodrow Wilson liked this car so much that some friends of his purchased it for him uh, when he leaves office in 1921, and he gets to take it with him into private life. Thanks to a team of talented and dedicated volunteers, it still runs today. It doesn't go very fast, and it doesn't have very good gas mileage, but it is a familiar sight 
uh, on the streets of Stanton in the summer and fall. It participates in local parades and has traveled the country for special events and car shows. Though I will also say that when it travels out of Virginia, it's always on a trailer. We never try to drive it on the interstate. While we have so many great collections here at the museum, my favorite object in our museum collection is the stack of wool that we have from the White House sheep that lived on the lawn from 1918 to 1920. The wool represents a very weird but cool story about how propaganda worked during World War I, as the sheep were not only used to keep the lawn clean after all the lawn care workers went off to war, but also that their wool was shorn and donated to the American Red Cross to use as a fundraiser across the country. The wool and the fundraiser brought in over $50,000 for the American Red Cross, and the sheep also became national treasures. Many newspapers posted pictures of the sheep wandering about the lawn. Politicians commented how the sheep were a staple to the White House image, and Wilson himself walked out every day to visit and greet and speak with them. We also have a museum mascot named Wooly in our collection that is our own special sheep that speaks on Twitter and Instagram as a way to share our collection and fun educational information. I think it's a pretty cool story to think about how animals can help with a war effort and propaganda. I love, love, love the story of the sheep. I think it's just a scene from a bygone era. It would be hard to imagine seeing just a bunch of sheep grazing on the White House lawn today and no one batting an eye. I love it. The wool from the sheep was used to help raise significant amounts of money. And one of my favorite um, tidbits of information was that among the flock of sheep, there was a ram named Old Ike, who was known to be rather aggressive and liked to chew tobacco. Old Ike would chew on the discarded cigar butts that would be left on the White House lawn. So gotta love the White House sheep. The last years of Woodrow Wilson's life are sickly. Woodrow Wilson died and it is believed his last words were, Edith, I'm a broken machine, but I'm ready. Elizabeth, I would love to talk a little bit with you about Wilson's stroke in 1919 and the last years of his life. After he returns from Washington, shortly thereafter, he kind of has a massive stroke and he's yes incapacitated. Now, yes. we talked about this briefly, and I loved the answer that you gave me on the phone when we spoke. You know, th this idea that some people claim that Woodrow, uh, Woodrow Wilson's wife, Edith Wilson, should be considered the first female president in the sense that, you know, Nobody saw the, like, this would not happen today, right? Nobody saw the president. Nobody heard from the president. Very few people from time to time would have, like, these very brief meetings with him. But, like, for his vice president, didn't see him. Do you agree that Edith Wilson should be considered the first female president? No, I don't. I think uh, uh, when I look at Edith and I look at her background and the, the way that she wants wanted to be remembered and has very specifically curated the way her story unfolds she was if she wanted to be remembered as the first president of the united female president of the united states she would have made that without any doubt we wouldn't say that oh that's the case that is not who edith wilson was edith wilson saw herself as a steward of the president as a steward of the presidency she did not see herself as being the first female president um 
And she makes no bones about that. She's very, very clear that that is how, what her role was. People who uh, know Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, I say that she was the Nancy Reagan of her time. She looked adoringly at this man that she was caring for. In fact, one of the reasons that she she was not for, in favor of the suffrage movement, she thought that the women who were protesting outside the White House were just a bother, a burden, to, one more burden to her husband one more thing that he had to deal with. So her view of her husband and how she should take care of him was really, as I said, a caretaker. She didn't want, did not want to layer on anything more that was than absolutely necessary. And so I don't think that she would see herself as empowered to become, you know, the first female president. And as I said, if she wanted that, when you see the other things that she reached for, she, if she wanted to do that, she probably would have succeeded. Yeah, she probably would not have made any bones about it. Exactly. The other thing I found interesting is his burial place. You know, the Wilsons spend their final years in the home in Washington, D.C. And in my research for this podcast, one of the things I was reading about different obituaries in various newspapers throughout the United States. And Um, One of the obituaries that I was reading happened to be in the New York Daily News, and it talked about how there was this kind of rumbling that maybe Wilson would be buried in Arlington next to the tomb of the unknown soldier, but he is not. He's buried in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., one of only three presidents to be buried in a church, and he's buried in an Episcopal church. He was raised Presbyterian. Why that particular location? Do you have any insight on that? Uh, well, he chose, he, I know that he felt that he was not a soldier. And even though as commander in chief, he didn't feel he had the right to be buried along with soldiers, having seen what soldiers go through and the men and women who were buried in Arlington. And he chose very specifically not to be buried and not have that honor. Why the National Cathedral? You know, I don't know exactly why. It was actually a very new cathedral at the time. It was was not a big historic site. It was still, in some ways, the crypts were still under construction. When Edith died, she was also buried in National Cathedral with alongside him. And I don't know the answer. I don't know why they chose that particular cathedral or cemetery. I will tell you things I do know about his funeral because we're coming up to the centennial in 2024. Uh, It'll be the centennial of his of his death. And um, I was told by one of the historians that's John Milton Cooper Jr., who's really the Woodrow Wilson scholar in terms of his history and not just about World War One, but about Woodrow Wilson. And he said that the cortege for his uh, funeral had over 200,000 people that, that lined the streets to, to mourn and to, to follow the parade of, of his casket going. He was laid out at the house in 2340 S Street, the Woodrow Wilson house. Uh, he was laid out there and then taken to the National Cathedral. Woodrow Wilson's legacy today is an interesting one for sure. He is a man who did a number of great things. His ideals helped shape foreign policy for years to come. You hear that phrase being used, Wilsonian democracy. Wilson is also a man whose attitudes towards race set civil rights back in this country. He supported the segregation of federal agencies. 
how does the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Museum and Library handle such a complex character like Wilson? We don't talk about him as a good or bad president, uh, but as a consequential one, a person whose decisions and actions continue to influence our nation and the world uh, today. There are lots of good reasons to both admire and condemn Wilson. And so the WWPL doesn't attempt to influence people's opinions one way or the other. We try to present Wilson warts and all and let our visitors, uh, those who participate in our programs, make up their minds uh, for themselves. You know, I think that that's important. That is something that we certainly strive to do every podcast that we put out. We don't want to dictate your opinions about an event or a person. We want to present you with the facts and have you make your own mind up about things. In terms of Wilson's legacy, he's viewed and discussed differently today than he was when his presidency first ended or even in the years following his death. In June of 2020, Princeton University, the school he once taught at at and was president of, issued a lengthy statement. And this is the first paragraph of that statement. The Princeton University Board of Trustees voted today to remove Woodrow Wilson's name from the university's School of Public and International Affairs, which will now be known as the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. We have taken this extraordinary step because we believe that Wilson's racist thinking and policies make him an inappropriate namesake for a school whose scholars, students, and alumni must be firmly committed to combating the scourge of racism in all of its form. And if you want to read the full statement, it's located on princeton.edu. Wilson's name and impact is still very much present at Princeton. During his time on the faculty and as president, he transformed Princeton into one of the greatest educational institutions in the country, some would argue more than any other individual. The university's highest honor is still known as the Woodrow Wilson Award. I think that the best way to close out this podcast on Wilson is with this quote, everything is arguable about Wilson, starting with the date of his birth. Oh, wow. Thank you, Jeannie, and also to our guest contributors. Next up on U.S. History Repeated, we will begin our coverage of World War One. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.